We are keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, There's a voice from history, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. Memory is a vital component of our current identity. So what we are generally taught in school is made to conform to official myth, which supports a safe, non-threatening picture we choose to believe. And I would contend that the reason we are shielded from more accurate history is that such knowledge can greatly disturb the status quo. We can't have schools doing that now, can we? And while history never repeats itself exactly, as Mark Twain said, history often rhymes. There are so many examples of things we, our government, and other actors in making history are doing, which... If we'd only learned the actual history, we most likely would not be doing yet again. In 1989, for example, we in America found it amusing that the Soviet Union found itself in its own Vietnam called Afghanistan. They had failed to learn the lesson. But did we? Look at our current experience in Afghanistan and Iraq. The United States military violently imposes its own vision of a government on the people of those nations without their consultation or assent. And we're having the same level of success as we did in what was then called South Vietnam. It doesn't work. Of course, a great many Americans back in the late 60s and early 70s could see that we were not bringing democracy to the welcoming people of Vietnam. Millions of us resisted the tragedy of that war, which cost the lives and limbs of millions of Vietnamese and tens of thousands of young Americans. The process of protesting that war evolved from its start in pretty much 1964 until the final end of the war in 1975. Are there lessons to learn which might be applicable for today's wars? Uh, Yeah, one would think so. Our guest on Keeping Democracy Today was right there in the middle of the Vietnam protest and has much to teach today's anti-Trump pro-democracy protesters. But as, as Robert Levering can attest, there are things that happened in the history of the 60s protests that were most unfortunate strategically. And as we in the 1960s, for the most part, failed to learn about the struggles in America in the 1930s, so today the 20 teens uh, are protesters failing to learn important lessons from the 1960s. And failure to learn can mean the difference between failure 
and success, war and peace, literally life and death. Robert Levering was a full-time peace activist from 1967 to 73, helping organize demonstrations for the New Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam, People's Coalition for Peace and Justice, the Honeywell Project, a Quaker action group, and the Americans Friends Services Committee. Uh, he's on the board of peace workers and is a journalist interested in workplace issues now, and he wrote a book called The 100 Best Companies to Work for in America, and then compiled Fortune Magazine's annual list by the same name. That's great. I'm, I'm impressed. You know, we, we learn uh, what is effective and what's not effective. Thanks so much for being on Keeping Democracy Alive today. I, I, I wonder if you and I may have met dodging police tear gas and billy clubs on the streets of Washington because I spent a little bit of time down there as well. Uh, Robert Levering has written an article called How Anti-Vietnam War Activists Stopped Violent Protest from Hijacking Their Movement. And we'll be discussing that today. It is exceptionally relevant today, sad to say, with the sophistication of the so-called alt-right, which is really just white nationalist fascists out to create a police state and a plutocracy and destroy what's left of our democratic republic. And, of course, uh, our guest, uh, uh, Robert Levering, and I share our deep desire, uh, despise, I should say, for the man I call Benito the Chito. Mr. Trump, is, <laughs> Mr. Trump is very much like Benito Mussolini and is kind of the color of Cheetos uh, and just as healthy. <laughs> it's been incredibly uplifting to see and to feel the widespread resistance to this truly anti-American threat to our traditional values. For example... In Little Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the day of the National Women's March all over the country, uh, the day after the inauguration of Trump, the organizers were hoping 500 people would show up. According to police, we had 3,500, 3,500 police, a lot of new people who'd never been fired up or participated in anything like this before. And, and, and you write that you see some parallels to the early days of the anti-war movement. And that sounds rather uplifting. What have you seen that makes you think that, Robert Levering? Well, what's, what's really notable is how widespread the opposition is. Um, in the, actually, in the early days of the anti-Vietnam War movement, our, our marches were quite small. Yes, they were. And it was something that grew over time. And um, you know, by the by the end of the war, not only were the um, marches very big, but the overwhelming majority of Americans were on our side. Yeah. And a lot of the reason that we had them on our side, I believe, is that we had um, very—I mean, with very few exceptions—the demonstrations and protests and direct actions were conducted nonviolently. Yes, and that helped us. Uh, immeasurably to be able to swing uh, what Nixon called the silent majority over to our side rather than rather than stick with the uh, the, the uh, people that supported the war. Yes, that's true. And, and go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and I was I was going to say that that one of the things that's that's really um, an important factor in that era was of course, what people called the generation gap. And um, those of us, I, I, guess, uh, I take it, Bert, if you participated in some of the demonstrations, that <laughs> you must be uh, from that era as well. I am, yes, I am. And, um, and I don't know 
what it was like in your family, but I know in my family there was a definite generation gap because so many of our parents and relatives who were, you know, of, of our parents' generation were, um, you know, went through the Second World War or the, and or the Korean War. And at that time, you know, virtually the whole society just went along with it and yes. assumed that, uh, and it's been called, you know, in more recent days, you know, the good war. Yes. And it was, and so the mindset of people uh, of that generation was very much one of, you got to go along with the government. Right. You know, that uh, no matter what is, uh, what they say, you have to go along because there was a great deal of trust in the government. But what happened was that the Vietnam War was such, you know, that we could see with our own eyes that this was really an atrocity. So those of us, particularly the, the, the people that were younger, who, because of the draft, were directly affected by it. Yes. And so we had, you know, I mean, so the, so the, we had to make decisions about where we stood, you know, where we personally stood about the war because it affected us. That if we, if we did nothing, we could wind up in Vietnam. Yes. You know? So it was, you know, it was a very, very major thing. So there was a lot. So what I'm trying to say is that at the time, there was such an incredible social, you know, particularly from the older generation, such a bias towards going along with the war. Yes. You know, it was, it was sort of like the default position. Yeah. So what, in, in terms of what one of the major tasks of the anti-war movement, uh, you know, as it proceeded, was to be able to move that, that social and political, you know, cultural um, assumption that you should go along with the government and assume that what they're saying is true and right, and, you know, and to, to change that, to say, no, this is wrong and it ought to be stopped. So, so our issue was how do we really move the whole society? How do we, you know, particularly impact, uh, you know, a culture that assumes that the government's always right? Well, that's one thing that is actually, it seems to me anyway, quite different from today, where uh, back in the early days of, of the war in Vietnam, there was kind of a, as you say, an assumption that trust the government, the government's the good guys. You know, we were the good guys in World War II and uh, maybe Korea. I don't really understand what that one was all about. It seems like just sort of pictured in the Cold War, which, uh, of course, Vietnam was categorized that too. But people don't trust the government anymore. But I, I think, I don't know if, if in the early days of, of the Vietnam War protests, if people thought we could really do anything I mean, now it seems to me most what's been the status quo is the government, you know, and their corporate sponsors have have convinced most Americans we're powerless. We can't do anything. It's not our government. And, you know, maybe in a way uh, uh, that, you know, the idea that that we can't do anything, that uh, we're powerless, that's being challenged very, very strongly now. I mean. I was, you know, that, that uh, January 21st uh, uh, Women's March, which of course included everybody, was extremely encouraging. And, and what I found that you know, it came, I think you would agree, Robert, sort of slowly in the 60s was that, hey, you know what? We really can fight City Hall. We actually can do it. 
and one of the things I wanted to you know, the 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 anti-war movement uh, grew and changed in many different ways, uh, and I will tell you, uh, in 1965, I went to my uh, very first uh, uh, protest. I was only 14 years old, so I wasn't draft age yet, and I knew there was no way I was going to go in there. But you know, coming out of the 50s, I I believed. In America, and I still do. I still believe in that patriotic stuff that, you know, what our founders intended was self-government, government of, by, and for the people, not some big corporate special interest. And I think it was out of that, that sense that, you know, we, the United States, had been looked up to by the developing world, by the uh, people in uh, colonialized nations like Vietnam would look to the United States to to support their freedom and independence from the colonial powers like France. And of course, we did just the opposite. And so it was, you know, it was a real shock what we were doing there. But again, one of the things that the ways the the the, the uh, protest, the anti-war movement uh, metamorphosized over a long period of time uh, there got to be some violence after a while. People got really frustrated. And, you know, long after, or not just a few days after the event uh, in Washington and all across the country protesting Trump, uh, were, we read about violence in Berkeley. I, I heard on right wing radio the hosts really crowing about the violence there. They just couldn't stop talking about the violence and how bad you know, the protesters are, you know, and lumping them all together with the violence. What what really happened in Berkeley? Do we know what, what really happened out there, what the violence was, what the level was? What what do you know about that? Well, um, I'm in California, and I am, good. you know, I know people who were there, <laughs> uh, you know, because I'm in Northern California, uh, San Francisco. Um there were a group. There was a group of. I mean, the estimate that I've seen uh, is about a hundred of people who were what they call uh, black block uh, right, right. people who were using a tactic that has been used actually, you know, for a number of years. A group uh, that call themselves anarchists. Yes. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, they dress in black, cover their faces, and they, you know, explicitly come to. Uh, come to demonstrations to destroy property, right. and uh, oftentimes get in fights with um, opponents, uh, with um, either police or, you know, sometimes if there's right-wing uh, uh, protesters or demonstrators, and, you know, they will attack them. And anyway, that was what, um, you know, there was a peaceful demonstration right. where people came in, and there were confrontations with the police. This was over the, uh, you know, the Breitbart writer, uh, Milo, um, yes. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, mm, the right. Greek name, or Milo. Yeah, Canopolis, something like that. <laughs> yes. Anyway, he, uh, you know, he was going to speak, and that's what the protest was about. And there were uh, over a thousand or about a thousand uh, people right. that were coming to demonstrate peacefully, sure. but then these black block people showed up, and then they engaged in, you know, trashing windows and getting into confrontations, and that's then what was, uh, became the focus of a lot of the media coverage of it, uh, which is not unusual that yeah. um, the violent protests, even if it's small, attracts uh, the, a lot of media that's attention. 
uh, there's a there's a phrase, you know, if it bleeds, it, it leads. Bleeds, right. You know, in journalism, you know, that yes. if there's blood, then that's the the, the main thing that that hap- that that is that attracts attention immediately. Yeah. So that's what happened there. But that also happened on inauguration day in um, oh. in uh, Washington. There were some black bloc people, but that's actually a fairly you know, it's becoming increasingly common, or it has become increasingly common, um, uh, you know, for these people to show up and engage in these kinds of activities. Wow. Yeah, that that's, I mean, politics is theater. That's one of, one thing I've learned through the years. And the media, yes. as, you, as you say, they love action, just something, you know, that'll grab, you know, a visual. They're driven by visuals. I remember uh, at one demonstration I was at in Washington, D.C., I heard... Uh, back in '69 or '70, uh, some rep- you know reporter yelling, "They're yelling! They're running in the streets! They're running in the streets!" Oh, good action! You know, th- that's what drives them. I, you know, before this, I, most of us had never heard of something called black block tactics, and it's black the color and B L O C. Who, who, what are they? And and who is who? Who are they? What are they doing? Where did they come from? And I, you know, where did they get the name Black Blocked? Any idea? I mean, it, it sounds sort of scary if you see these these probably mostly young men uh, who haven't uh, gotten some wisdom yet from growing up a little bit. But you know, ooh, smashing things isn't that fun. But tell us, I mean, you know, Black Block. Who who are they? How did they get organized? Well, I mean, historically, they. Uh, I mean, they're adopting some of the tactic, or, you know, the, the, the garb, the black, you know, is the anarchist black. Right. Um, right. You know, I mean, there was the black and the red. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, during the 30s, the, yes. the anarchists were in black and the, and the communists were in red and right. the Nazis were in brown, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, in the street. Um, anyway, but that, that the street uh, riots that went on there. Um, but anyway, that, that they're, they... They apparently, you know, have adopted some of that in terms of their costume and so on. I'm not an expert in, you know, exactly how they have evolved, but uh, what they're—I mean, that's that's generally, you know, the, the strand that they they take is a, is an anarchist strand. Yeah. Um, though a lot of my friends who are anarchists. Uh, yeah. Say, that's not anarchism. <laughs> right. Very vehemently against that because they uh, oftentimes anarchists or pacifists or don't believe in violence whatsoever because that's coercive and so on. Yeah. But anyway, right. the the point is that the the black bloc people um, represent um, you know you know the article that that I did for waging nonviolence was sort of making a comparison with the Weatherman group. Yes, which was really the most comparable group yes. uh, to the Black Bloc. Yes, uh, you know, half a century ago. Mm-hmm. Hard to believe it was that long ago, but both uh, did a lot of damage, in my opinion. And it was it was kind of reactionary, literally, because they were reacting. You know, Trump is bad. Well, let's smash the window. I, you know, it's just sort of dumb, I think. But I, I thought you had some interesting observations in in your article. Uh, you said that they, the so-called anarchists, and I agree with you. I mean, 
Anarchism does not necessarily involve chaos or violence and things like that, but, but they haven't realized that. It, they, it would be good, in my opinion, if they looked into what anarchism really is, because there was a long tradition in America of, of anarchism and in, in Europe as well, but it's not what they think. It's just not. Anyway, you wrote, they, the black box people, need us as a cover for their actions. What do you mean by that? They need us for, as a cover for their actions. Well, what I, what I uh, did is I traced actually what happened with the weathermen. Uh, now, the weathermen were very, you know, like the black black people, they attract a lot of attention because they, yeah, they uh, you know, advocated, you know, that they said that they were revolutionaries, believed ultimately in a violent overthrow of the state, and they believed that there would be, you know, that the... Um, this would be precipitated by um, having violent actions. Yes. And this was something, I mean, it has a long, I mean, that definitely has a long tradition, and it's a tradition that uh, certainly the Marxist-Leninists yes. have advocated and did advocate for years, and that was extremely um, popular in the 60s, you know, in terms of a lot of people on the left very much, but we, you know, many of them called themselves communists or Marxist or yeah. Leninists, and there, you know, there were groups yeah. of, uh, you know, that were organized around you know, that philosophy. That yeah. so that was that was sort of an undercurrent uh, going on, and and the Weathermen actually came out of the very large uh, student movement yes. that became an organization called the Students for Democratic Society mm-hmm. that Tom Hayden was one of the founders of. But anyway, that was that was the... And then what happened was that the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, uh, was essentially taken over by the Weathermen, mm. uh, which were people who were advocating a more, what they said, a more militant uh, position and and the the SDS itself basically collapsed uh, when that happened. But at any rate, um, you asked about this this issue of a cover. What they did yeah. is that they in um, after the uh, Democratic convention in 1968 yes. uh, in Chicago, and I happen to have been there and could talk about that if you wanted. But after that. Um, after what was actually a police riot, yes. um, they felt that what really needed to happen is that the real, the true revolutionaries, the true militants, should organize their own demonstration, and you know, and and um, encourage people to come to. They also said to come to Chicago, and this was in October of um, 1969. Mm-hmm. You know, a year later. Yes and that they would have what they called the Days of Rage. Yes. And they spent uh, several months, um, well, you know, at least several months, you know, almost a whole year beforehand, trying to recruit people for this activity. And what they were explicitly going to do is that they were going to come with their, you know, bring your helmets and bring a club and, <laughs> you know, bring, you know, come ready for action. Right. And what happened was they they failed to attract very many people. Uh, the 
estimate that I've seen is about 300 people, only about 300 people showed up. Mm-hmm. Now, this is in an era when uh, tens of thousands of people were showing up for some of the major, major anti-war. Oh, yeah, like countries. half a million sometimes, yeah. Right, right. Actually, even in that fall of 1969, this happened. Yep. Uh, just actually a few weeks after. I mean, we can go into the history of that in a minute, but the point is that they they were not able to recruit very many people, and what happened was that they were crushed. I mean, just almost, you know, immediately, they... Um, you know, they had several days, but by the end of by the end of a couple of days, uh, they were all in jail or gone. And um, and even the police at one point even fired live ammunition at them, and there were several of them that were hit, about a half dozen, as I recall. Wow. But at any rate, they they were uh, it didn't work, and what's I mean, it didn't it certainly didn't spark the revolution. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, and. Right, and and then what happened to the weathermen was that after that they went underground. Uh, they then decided to take their violent, you know, that violent street tactics on their own didn't work, which gets to the question that you raised about about how they, you know, use, you know, the the, the kind of violent street tactics on their own are, you know, it's a loser's game because you're you're basically. You know, the, the police really know how to handle that. Oh, of course. Um, the police <laughs> and the military are experts at violence, and right. no matter what any group of uh, <laughs> you know, street activists can do, um, the the other side has a monopoly of violence Absolutely. in our society. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just silliness to think that you wouldn't, you know, that you could beat them at their own game. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, what the weathermen, you know, just to finish that about sure, the weathermen, sure. is that they then um, decided that they would uh, resort to bombings. Yeah. And so they, you know, spent the rest of the, you know, the next few years doing what were essentially symbolic bom- bombings. And then when they would, they would issue what they call a weather report, which was, you know, explanations, you know, public explanations about why they were doing it. But the bombings were were relative. I mean, they they didn't really have much of an impact, either, either um, you know politically or you know they they did virtually no damage, um, and they were, you know, it was basically ineffective. Totally. I don't think too many people would uh, dispute that. But in retrospect, um, many of the people who were in the Weathermen actually at this point agree that it was ineffective. And in the article that I wrote, I quoted from a recent book, and the quote is from Bill Ayers, who was one uh-huh. of the main leaders of the Weathermen. And he said um, that they were, you know, that it was a big mistake. You know, that the days of rage was a big mistake. Right. And then he also said that... Um, I mean, we can get into, you know, how did the the, the rest of the, or the, the main part of the anti-war movement deal with them. Mm, but uh, the point was that, uh, you know, it was not, it did not work for them. And I would argue that the black black people, if they called their own demonstrations, you know, and they just were on their own, very few people would show up. True. 
and they would be, you know, they would lose. I mean, there's no way they can, you know, uh, you know, 100, 200, 300, even, you know, several thousand people who would come out to do that kind of activity could possibly last very long mm. with uh, the, the police and military because they, they're, the they're experts. other side just has limitless resources. Oh, my God. It's so true, and we just... You know, I get picture of these. They got to be mostly, if almost entirely, young males who, you know, have this uh, energy, the hormones raging, whatever. You know, put. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't want to put them down or anything. But well, maybe I do actually. I suppose I do because they do great, great harm. And certainly the the weather, weathermen, and then weather underground, uh, they. They hurt us a lot, you know. If if, if people linked, and what the, I think what the right wing is doing now <clears throat> is they're gleefully, like I said, that that uh, radio uh, talk show person in Boston actually saying, "Oh, this is this is what the protests against Trump are all about." These people wearing black, smashing uh, storefronts, you know, breaking windows of cars. I mean, it's just it's stupid. It's really it doesn't accomplish anything except hurt us and you know back in the in the late 60s one had to wonder if they were agents provocateur you know maybe it was the right wing maybe it was uh uh j edgar hoover yeah they i don't know if they were smart enough to do that but i will remember i do remember personally one of the greatest actions in my opinion in the anti-war movement was the little known may day demonstration may day uh, 1971 our goal was to symbolically shut down the center of the war machine, which was Washington, D.C., to shut it down with our bodies and with people would park cars on bridges and just snarl at traffic. I was there, and I'll never forget seeing some men among the protesters urging us to pick up rocks and throw them at the police. Of course, pretty much everyone, you know, <laughs> stayed away from such a stupid action. We could see it was an intentional provocation. I wonder what might be happening now. I mean, it seemed to me that, you know, these kind of uh, crazy, you know, window smashing, you know, and, and gives the far right and the Trump people, same thing, far right Trump people, you know, a great motivation. Say, see, this is what the peace people are. You know, the anti-war people are, the anti-Trump people are. Could this be happening now, do you think, with the uh, black box people? And I don't know if you heard of something. There's this far right, very dishonest group called Project Veritas, which uh, they created that uh, that uh, anti-abortion uh, Planned Parenthood attack by splicing together some some video, and and they do things like this to uh, to make it look like this is being done by legitimate uh, protesters, and. You know, not to talk too long on this, but I know that uh, uh, Robert Reich recently wrote uh, about uh, he had a theory that it, that it was uh, put together, uh, that, that there was a right wing conspiracy behind the black mark, black box anarchist. What are your thoughts about that? I, I, I think that the black block people are probably the most I mean, if you wanted to create a situation that's ripe for provocateurs, the black bloc are ideal, absolutely ideal, whether they're, you know, from the government provocateurs or right-wing provocateurs, and that's because of the anonymity 
you know, the, to mask themselves, they don't know who each other is. Yeah, true. So wow, I mean, that's that very different from the weathermen, where the weathermen were very, very, very clear about, I mean, they, you know, they had a long history together, actually, the people, the core group of the weathermen, and they were very public, exactly, we know, they knew, everybody knew exactly who they were. The black block people are, they're very much at a disadvantage. Now, when you talk about provocateurs, and you mentioned what you saw in the May Day, um, and, and I could discuss that a little bit because I was very much involved in organizing that oh, good. Uh, series of protests. But the provocateurs were absolutely all over our movement. They were. Uh, I saw them. They yes. were, um, I, I could tell, one of the uh, projects I worked on during the time was called the Honeywell Project. And Honeywell made one of the armaments that was used in Vietnam extensively, which was called the cluster bomb unit, oh, CBUs, yes. and they were they were um, dropped in can. You know, there were bombs that were dropped within you know a big uh, bomb, and then there were they were about the size of a baseball, right. and they just had you know shrapnel in you know that was uh, you know that had explosives, and it did no property damage. It was purely anti-personnel. Right. And these bombs were dropped on villages. Yes. And all it did is it, it would kill people right. and maim people. It was, you know, horrific, horrific, uh, you know, as, as was Nepal. Yes. And so we had, you know, this group of us were going to have a demonstration at the... Um, uh, headquarters of Honeywell when they were having their shareholders meeting. So very public <laughs> thing. And, you know, we had uh, several hundred of our people that were there. And I know that at one point, this guy, you know, very, you know, kind of walks in front of me and he has a box with bottles in it. <laughs> oh you know, and he, you know, it was just very obvious. You know, he just, you know, puts it down and he leaves. And, you know, the objective was clearly he wanted us to pick up the bottles and throw them at the police mm-hmm. or throw them at the building or something. Jeez. Give it, you know, that's where provocateur is, you know, provoke a reaction, provoke a violent reaction. Right. Um, and anyway, so, and I can go on and on and on about examples of that. You know, oh, in Chicago so in 68, one of the guys that, uh, you know, wound up in our organizing group you know, turned out in the uh, Chicago 8 trial later, I mean, he turned out to be a provocateur. I mean, a police agent. Oh, right. There. I remember that. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, you know, it, it was the riddle of Occupy. The Occupy movement had people that were later found out to be police or... No, or, no kidding. Um, you know, it, it, and now why? I mean, the important thing is not just, you know, whether they exist or will exist, but why do they do it? Well, they do it because... To provoke the violence is exactly what the other side wants. Absolutely. And you mentioned you mentioned the right wing uh, uh, radio host who yeah. uh, gloated over the violence in Berkeley. Yep. Well, you know our tweeter in chief did also. There was a uh, you know what he came yes, and I have a quote. You know, one of his tweets was after the Berkeley incident that we talked about earlier, he said, professional, quote, professional anarchist thugs and paid protesters approving the point of millions of people who voted to make America great again. Right. Perfect. Perfect. 
you know, right from the very top. And, and you can believe, you better believe that, you know, he wants that. I mean, we remember, I mean, I think anybody who was following the election remembers that he actually, in one of his own rallies, I mean, he did this more than once, but yes. in his own rallies, would actually encourage people to to beat up protesters. Yes, he did. You know, he he wants that, and then he's got he's got you know there are thousands and thousands of people who are armed to the teeth who are itching yes. to use their weapons against the people that are against Trump. Yes, they I are. mean that would be willing to let's say. You know, and whether or not that would be actually encouraged by Trump, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he would. And it certainly is not beyond, you know, it doesn't take much imagination to think this would happen. Um, So when people, if anybody thinks that that, uh, violence would uh, not be something that the other side would encourage, but they would feel very comfortable with, you just have to think about, you know, the whole, you know, the whole aura, the kind of undercurrent of violence and, you know, the bullying and so on that's really part of his aura and part of what his appeal is to some people. And now, in terms of why this is bad for us, mm. that, that violence of any sort in, you know, when you talk about, you know, big demonstrations or small demonstrations or anything, it reduces participation if people think that there's going to be violence. That's for sure. Or they think that this is going to happen. It's much, you know, it raises the bar a great deal if, you know, that for many, many people. Now, one of the beauties of the, the Women's March, or marches, I should say, because they were all over, all not over. just in the U.S., but all over the world, That's true. was the fact that they had you know, that it was very clearly organized to be nonviolent, and very clearly that everybody was welcome, and it was encouraged to bring kids and so on. Now, if people thought that one of the, you know, that a that there was going to be violence in them, yeah. they just wouldn't have had the, the kind of participation that we had, because it not only reduces participation, but, you know, potential allies don't want to have anything to do with it. Right. And, you know, and, and obviously it um, makes it more likely, you know, that, that the repression against it could be much greater. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, if it's, if it's done in a nonviolent way, you know, that you actually can get defections. Um, yeah. You know, from the other sure. side. Absolutely. You know, p- even people like, uh, you know, probably the most... Uh, illustrious defector from the other side uh, during the Vietnam War was Daniel Ellsberg. Yes, indeed. And he, a lot of, you know, if you read his biography, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I've heard him <laughs> say this, you know, in person, you know, is that he was very impacted by the draft resistors, you know, who were risking prison. Yeah. And, you know, clearly a nonviolent uh, uh reaction to the to the draft and the war that he was very impressed with that you know that their willingness to make you know to do that kind of risk that he was willing to go over to the other side yeah um i don't think he would have gone over to yeah. the other side if the 
you know, <laughs> if it, I mean, it wasn't the model of the weatherman that, that got him over, but it was the model <laughs> of the, the nonviolent resistance. Boy, that is for sure, for sure. So much to talk about here. Uh, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Live, Robert Levering, he's written an article called How Anti-War uh, anti-Vietnam War activists uh, stopped the violent protest from hijacking their movement. And there is a danger of that now. And, you know, we talked about theater and building the movement. This is like, I think, the early days of the, the protest movement against Vietnam. We're, we're building. We want people to join us, talk to the humanity of other people. And one gets a picture, talk about theater, of that young person putting the flower in the barrel of the gun of the person around the, around the Pentagon. What a great image that is. And, it, you know, it, it, it's about images for sure and building that up and talking to people. And that is, as you say, uh, Robert, one of the great things about the, uh, the Women's March that uh, people were smiling. This was like neighbors. And that's important. You know, the black box people smashing windows. Uh, as, as somebody famous once said, if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're still building the movement. You know, some people could say, oh, you know, being peaceful against this incredibly corrupt, you know, violent, militarized group is, is naive and is not effective. There are ways, like the image of the flower and the gun, that had some effect. And I'm reminded of something that I believe you and I both participated in, the March Against Death. That was amazing. Uh, recognizing, right. again, that politics is theater, it told the story in a picture. Tell us about what that was, please. It was, it was an incredible Okay. Um, well, this is something I, I know a lot about because I was very involved at uh, all stages of this. Yeah, it was, right. it was a really clear... Um, I, I, I think I, I really like what you're talking about as politics as theater. Um, one of the attractions, uh, one of the reasons that people want to, you know, that, that they are attracted to violence is because that's a kind of theater. Yes. And Action. one, of the, one yes. of the talks or one of the things that people often, well, I mean, that I've heard many times over many years, you know, is that marches don't work. You know, that right. while we've done that before and it didn't, you know, affect immediate change, and therefore it's not going to work. Right. Well, aside from the kind of immaturity of that, thinking yes. that social change is going to come overnight. <laughs> um, I know, I know. You're so right. There is a very important point there, which is that there's a difference between protest and resistance. True. That at a certain point, you know, marches are very important to sort of, you know, let people feel that they are, or, you know, for solidarity and to build a community, and that that's a very important thing, yes. I think, for any kind of social movement, social change movement to to do that and to, you know, to have people do that. But that's really on the level of, and, and I'm not trying to diminish it. I mean, I think it's extraordinarily important. I think that the Women's March was fabulous on every level, Okay. But there's also, it doesn't express all of what people feel needs to be done in terms of actually resisting the evil that, or the, yeah. maybe you don't have to say it in moral terms, but the, the injustices that you feel are, you know, exist. Now, with the, certainly a very good example of a kind of resistance is what happened when the Muslim ban 
band came out. Right. That was you know, the, the you know, people flocked to the airports. And, you know, that was a very that was great theater. That was amazing. Great nonviolent theater. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, but yes, you should be able to come in, you know, so now during the Vietnam War we had, you know, starting, you know, in actually the first demonstrations against the war were in sixty four and sixty five. Right. And so that by 1969, you know, there had been a number of demonstrations, oh. including what you, you you mentioned, the Pentagon demonstration in 1967. Right. You know, with the with with the flower and the barrel of a gun. But in, by 69, there was a kind of um, you know there were a lot of people who felt that you know the, their opposition was not enough, you know. Um, to just to, to just do the marches. Yes. So there had been, you know there had definitely been nonviolent direct action uh, you know resistance things before that. But anyway, in the um, summer of 1969, there was a group I was involved with called the Quaker Action Group, mm-hmm. and we had the idea of making visible the. Something, and you'll remember this, but you know, one of the most awful things about the war in Vietnam was what they called the body count. Yes. You know, every day, you know, we would hear on the media how many people were killed the previous day in Vietnam. Mm. And particularly after any battle, you know, they would give the body count of how many of the. Mm you know, of the uh, Viet Cong were killed, you know. But also, the American soldiers, you know, we'd say, you know, that there were 222 killed that day. Well, what we thought was, we have to personalize this. We have to make these people not just numbers, but real people. So one of the congressmen had put in, he thought that it was very important to put into the congressional record the names and hometowns of every single uh, soldier who had been killed in Vietnam. And so he actually had inserted in the congressional record, you know, that list. Now, by 1969, we're talking about, uh, I don't know, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 Americans had been killed. And, you know, when you hear a number like that, it's just, you know... You get numb. You don't think about individual people. Mm-hmm. So what we had in mind for a, you know, for our political theater was to go to the steps of the Capitol, go to the steps of the Capitol, read, and read from the congressional record and actually read the names of the war dead, you know. And so we would very solemnly, and it was mostly, you know, a group of Quakers, and we had, um, not all Quakers, I wasn't a Quaker at the time myself, but anyway, you know, and, and we had, I can't remember, it might be the first time, maybe a dozen or, or so. And what happened is that, you know, a lot of people don't know that the Capitol was, it was illegal to have any demonstration on the Capitol steps. Hmm. So what happened is that we would go read the names of the war dead on the Capitol steps from the congressional record, which was you know, produced right there in the in the building right behind us, and we would just read the names of the war dead. And so the theater part was that then the Capitol police would come and arrest us and yeah. take us, you know, take us off to jail. Right. So 
the next Tuesday um, at noon, we did the same thing. And we did this three or four times when several congressmen decided to join us. And we had, um, you know, um, undoubtedly many, many of the older listeners will remember uh, Ed Koch, hmm. Bella Abzug, ah, yes. were two of the, uh, the co- Congress people at the time who did join us. And so what happened was that they would, you know, we were arrested because they were members of Congress that yeah. could not be arrested because they had immunity. Uh-huh. So they continued reading the names after we were carted away. Right. So, as you can imagine, this was great, <laughs> great stuff for uh, the evening news, and it was on the evening news. And uh, interestingly, what happened was that after we did this for about two months, and uh, we actually won the court case. And the reason that people can demonstrate on the Capitol steps right now is because of us uh-huh. that we won the court case. Of, established the right to, to demonstrate on the Capitol. But anyway, in, that was in the summer of 69, and in November, we were planning another massive march uh, on Washington uh, to pr- protest the war. Now, Richard Nixon had just been elected, in, yeah. uh, or he had just come into office in January of 1969. Right. And so... You know, we wanted to make a very strong statement that he should not continue LBJ's war because he had been voted in as the peace candidate. Yeah. And yet the war was continuing. There was no change in the war. Yeah. There was just a lot of talk about peace, 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 peace. But peace there was, with honor. you know, it was really bombs, bombs, bombs. It just continued. So we wanted to, you know, and, and as I said before, people want to express something, you know, more than just, uh, uh, you know, sometimes they want to do more than just a another march. Right. So what we did is we we did on a much much larger scale uh, what was called what we did call the march against death. Right. And what we did is that we had the idea of having people meet at the Arlington National Cemetery, right. starting on the uh, two nights before you know on the Thursday evening before the march on Saturday afternoon. And so on Thursday evening, people started there, and they had, uh, each person had a, um, a card that was, uh, you know, that they would hold that was uh, slightly wider than, you know, maybe about four feet wide and about, uh, you know, six inches tall that had the name of the person and the town that they were from. So in other words, just like the reading of the names of the war dead, you know, the, you know, John Smith, Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. And uh, so the names of these people and the very first person to start this procession and the procession was to go from, it was a formal walk Mm -hmm. from the Arlington National Cemetery across the bridge, by the White House, yes. and into the, um, um, Up to the Capitol. The Capitol. Mm-hmm. And when the very first person was the wife of a, slain, of, of a soldier who'd been killed. Mm. So she started the march. There were 45,000 people who did this. It was a very solemn, you know, and at night we had candles. 
And, you know, that was, you know, one person after another, very solemnly, you know, walked in front. And when they got in front of the White House, in front of Nixon's home, they would uh, yell out the name, you know, John Smith, Little Rock, Arkansas. And I got to tell you, one and then the next person, if you can imagine, forty-five thousand people one at a time, and when they got to the Capitol, we had these open coffins, right? And they would deposit their, you know, these uh, cardboard uh, name tags, and they would put them in the coffins. And I can't remember it. I mean, my recollection is there were there were, you know four or five, maybe six coffins that were filled up with about 40,000, you know, that's how many people had been killed by that time in the war. It was, you know, one for each person. Or villages. They were also the villages that had been destroyed. So we had both the names, you know, to personalize the the, the civilian casualties as well as the... Um, U.S. servicemen. So anyway, we put these placards in the coffin, and then when the um, march uh, started the next day, the march the next day went uh, the reverse direction up Pennsylvania the other way toward the, uh, you know, towards where the Lincoln Memorial is, where we had the rally, Mm -hmm. and that was a, um, you know, it was led by these coffins. So it was, you know, it was very power, very, very powerful, uh, as you call it, political theater. And I got to tell you, as one of those 45,000 myself, I will never forget holding the name, you know, around around my neck and a piece of string around my neck and carrying a candle, yelling it out at the White House. And what that did, I think, for all 45,000 of us was really personalize it. And like, there was no way we were going to give up after that because that was a very, very meaningful moment for each one of us, and it kept up the momentum. And I think we have to think about all these things. We're faced with a real threat to America right now from what is in the White House. I think it's the biggest threat to American tradition since World War II. And we have to be creative, you know, and violence, it just, it only helps the other side. And one of the things that, that, you know, I was just a kid at the time. Training was done back in the day, as we're talking about here, to, right. pre- to prepare against disruptors and to intentionally divert attention from the disruptors. What can we learn from that? It, what, I mean, if, if people are at something now and some of these black box people come in, you know, and all dressed in black and it's scary and they're violent, what can people do? I mean, we got we to, gotta, you know, try to close that down. What, what, what do you suggest? What did... What was learned from from that training back then? How might it be applicable today? Well, specifically on the uh, 1969, you know, I described the march against death that started on the Thursday night until uh, Saturday morning for the big demonstration. Now, that demonstration on November 15, 1969, was until the Women's March this last uh, January, was the single largest one-day demonstration, political demonstration in Washington. Hmm. There were about a half million or so people who were there. Yes. I mean, absolutely, you know, huge, huge. I mean, the numbers, there was a real concern on our part of the, not necessarily the weatherman organization, Mm-hmm. But the idea of coming and making a militant protest, which was translated into smashing windows and trying to engage in fights yeah. with people, yeah. 
So we were very, very concerned about that. And we were also concerned because we had done other demonstrations that we just didn't have, you know, as well organized, you know, as well, you know, uh, organized as we could have done um, to um, make sure that our message was done without that distraction. So what we decided to do is that we decided to encourage people that were coming uh, you know, through the organizations that we were, that we had right. that we knew were coming, to have people come as marshals for the demonstration. Uh. And what we did is that we we had a like a two hour training program mm-hmm. that was uh, held in various churches that we were able to to get to cooperate with us. Sure. Um, and they would do uh, various role plays where they would uh, essentially role play situations that could happen where uh, either people on the, um, you know, from within the march who are trying to have breakaways, which is something that the uh, black bloc people do. Uh, yeah. But, you know, and this happened, you know, in the, the 60s as well, that would try to encourage protesters to come join them to go out and, right. you know, do the more militant actions. Right. So there would be, we'd do role plays where we'd have people that would do that, and then what do you do if you're one of the marshals, one of the people who's going to be, you know, right. the, the organize, you know, to, to uh, marshal the demonstration or monitor the, the demonstration, what do you do? So we, we went through a number of role plays where people got a feel of what kinds of things they could do. I mean, like, for instance, getting people, getting everybody to do a chant. Uh, was something that was a very important oh, thing, interesting. you know, be, and uh, you know, or to isolate those people. Yeah. But like a chant that we would encourage, there was a very at that time there was a very popular John Lennon song about give peace a uh, chance, yes. give peace a chance. You know, just repeating that again and again and again, which in a uh, you know in a mass situation was was catching. You know, that people really got that, and and, and the words of it sort of give an idea of what yeah. what you want how. You want people to behave, but anyway, we had a total of somewhere between four and five thousand people were actually um, trained right. through this uh, process, where we would, you know, they had gone through, you know, a, a little orientation about what we were trying to do and what the concerns that we had were, and then they'd done some role playing about how how to react in different ways. Well, we and need we, to, and then we assigned them to appear at uh, various places, so we had the entire. March line uh, with with our people who had well, we their white armbands on and yeah. they were very clearly and it was a very very orderly march. Well, the danger um, now we got to end. I mean, we've come to the end of the program. Unfortunately, we could talk a long time, but as these things go on, we have to prepare for this because you know there's going to be disruptors right. who are trying perhaps unintentionally, but are helping the the enemies of, of peace and, and of freedom and, you know, the, the fascists, basically. So I'm guessing, I mean, we need to point people somewhere. I'm guessing the uh, American Friends Service Committee, people like that, uh, might be a resource. What, what resources can you point people to real quickly? Well, I think that website Waging Nonviolence is a real good one. Waging Nonviolence. Um, and and there are, uh, you know, American Friends Service Committee, of course, but, you know, the War Resisters League. There's a number of different organizations, across, you, know, uh, you know, in your... But the main thing is to, to look at, you know, to make sure that if you're one of the people who's organizing something, make sure you think out all of the potential and yes. make sure that you've got something creative. 
Creative. Political theater. It's very important to channel the energy in a creative way. Absolutely. Many, many things that can be done. Thank you so much, Robert Levering. We've run out of time. Very, very interesting history. We've got to learn from history. And again, be creative. That's how we can win. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Dave, thank you. Keep up the great work. All of us, yes. It's a heavy lift, keeping democracy. 